My name is Chris, and I'm one of the pastors here at New City, and welcome. So glad to have you here today. We're continuing in a series entitled Pure Gospel. We're looking through the book of Romans. We're studying and journeying through Romans, and today we find ourselves in Romans, the fifth chapter, and our passage is Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Allow me to read the word of God to you today. Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Christ Jesus, our Lord, has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into the place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing in God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. Verse six, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. Verse 11, so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. What a passage. To Christ be the glory today. You can be seated. How many of you, just by show of hands, how many of you have been to Niagara Falls in New York? How many of you have been there? Okay, a lot more than 815, about half of you. Okay, nothing like it, is there? I mean, we can look at pictures. I've got a picture to show you of Niagara Falls, but it doesn't do it justice. So if you find yourself in that area, I would encourage you to make your way there to just see it because you're just overwhelmed. Those of you who have been there, right? You're overwhelmed with the magnitude and the power of, of God's creation. And in this instance, water, you know, flowing over and just the amount of water and space between the Canadian side and the United States side. Now I want you to imagine, those of you who have been there and even just looking at the picture here, can you imagine walking across Niagara Falls on a tightrope? 160 feet suspended in the air over a quarter of a mile between the Canadian side and the United States side over these powerful falls. This is what a man named Charles Blondin did. I guess this is what they did for fun back in 1859. They didn't have internet, so they had to walk over the Niagara Falls. He walks over Niagara Falls on a tightrope, 160 feet in the air. And of course, when people heard about this, they gathered from all around to watch Charles Blondin walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. 
and they're cheering and he comes across and he says, now, do you believe now that I've crossed, do you believe I could cross backwards and I could walk backwards across Niagara Falls? And the people cheer, we believe. And so he walks backwards across Niagara Falls and he comes back backwards and the crowd's going nuts. And he says, now, do you believe I could walk backwards blindfolded across Niagara Falls, a quarter of a mile, 160 feet in the air above the falls. Do you believe I could walk blindfolded backwards across and then back again? And the crowd says, we believe. And he does it. And he comes back. And I don't know how he got this, but he got some kind of a a harness and he put a stove on this harness that he strapped onto himself. And he said, now, do you believe I could walk across Niagara Falls on this tightrope frying an egg on this stovetop while I'm walking across Niagara Falls. And the crowd says, we believe, Charles. And so he walks across and he makes an omelet as he's walking back and forth and he comes back eating the omelet and the crowd goes crazy. This time he pulls out, if I can get it here, a wheelbarrow. And he says, now, I've walked across, I've, walked, I've gone backwards, I've gone blindfolded, I've made an omelet. Do you believe I could take this wheelbarrow in front of me and walk across Niagara Falls and make it back to the other side? And the crowd, of course, says, Charles, we believe you can do it. So he takes the wheelbarrow and he goes across. Then he comes back again and they go crazy. And finally he says, now, how many of you believe that I could take a person in this wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls and back again. And the crowd says, we believe Charles. And then of course he says, who's getting in the wheelbarrow? (laughs) Who's getting in the wheelbarrow? And nobody says a word, nobody volunteers and Charles is left on his own. The apostle Paul in the book of Romans has been building to this type of moment where he's demonstrating to us our brokenness and our need for God. And he's telling us about how God has made us right because of the completed work of Jesus on the cross, not our work, but his work. And he says, as we place our faith in Christ, as we put trust and faith in God, God rescues us and makes us right in his sight. In other words, Paul is saying, you gotta get in the wheelbarrow. It's one thing to say, look, I know that Jesus existed and I even, look, I even believe that Jesus did the things that the Bible says, including dying on the cross and being resurrected for my sins, defeating death for me. I believe that. And Paul says, if you know it and you believe it, do you trust him? Because it's one thing to know something. A lot of people know a lot about God, but they don't know God. There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. A lot of people believe that there's a God. They even believe in Jesus, that he existed, that he was a good moral teacher. Some of them even believe that he died on the cross for people's sins. It's another step to place your faith in Jesus. And what Paul is saying is that all throughout the book of Romans, it's building to this, that as we as people, you and me, as we place our faith in Jesus, 
God places his righteousness in us. In other words, our spiritual bank accounts that have been corrupted and bankrupted because of the condition of humanity and brokenness and because of our choices to participate in things that are against the way of God in our life, our spiritual bank accounts are bankrupt. And the only way that we can be made right and whole is for God to give us his righteousness. And Paul says the way that that happens is not through your works, but by your faith. It's by getting in the wheelbarrow. So last week in chapter four, if you missed it, go back and listen. Paul calls two star witnesses to the stand as he's demonstrating. Remember, Paul was a first-rate attorney. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was an expert in the law. And so he's giving this trial, if you will, through the letter that he sends to the church at Rome. And he's demonstrated that it's by faith in Jesus, not our works, that we're made right with him. And he calls two star witnesses to the stand in this trial. You remember who they were? Abraham and David which are two interesting witnesses because primarily the Roman church, there were certainly Gentiles, non-Jews, but there were many Jews, people who grew up Jewish and were, were following the one true God of Judaism and had now converted and believing that Jesus was the hope of Israel, the promised Messiah. And now uh, Paul is gonna call Abraham and David, the two most revered people in Israel as witnesses not to works, a works-based relationship with God, but a faith-based relationship to God, which was astounding. In other words, Paul was saying, as good as Abraham was, and as good as David was, they fall short of God's standard, and it's only by their faith in God that they were made right. Now, Paul calls uh, our attention to Genesis 15:6, which is you have a Bible, you have anything to write with, write that reference down. It is a foundational passage in our faith. First book in the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. As, as God is helping to explain his relationship with Abraham, he says this, that Abraham believed God and God credited it to Abraham as what? As righteousness. Oh, it's on the screen. Okay. I'm like, man, you guys got it. Um, <laughs> God credited it to him as righteousness because of what? Because of his faith. Now, this undercuts this idea that Abraham was just a better person than us, that, that he just had more faith than us, that he just believed more than us. No, Abraham had an amount of faith, small as it was, imperfect as it was that we talked about last week. And God took that small, imperfect faith and credited his spiritual bank account with his righteousness. And he does the same thing for us. And the reason why this is such a foundational passage, Genesis 15, 6, is it gives the construct for every other relationship with God that we have. So all of humanity from Abraham forward, it's the same equation. As we put our faith in God, he credits it back to us as righteousness. And of course, Abraham and David and others were looking forward to Jesus. Now we're looking back at what Jesus has done. And so the writer of Hebrews helps us with this when we think about faith. Faith, the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 11.1, 1, if you want to write that reference down, faith shows the reality of what we hope for, and it's the evidence of things that we cannot see. So faith shows us the realities of what we are hoping for. And further in verse 6, the writer of Hebrews says, it's impossible to please God without faith, because anyone who wants to come to God has to believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, what is the writer saying? 
In other words, you got to move from just believing, that's a great starting point to believe in God, to believe that Jesus came, that, to believe that Jesus died on the cross for you, to believe that his resurrection is the proof of his love for you. It's another thing to begin to place your faith in that, to get inside the wheelbarrow. It's to use our story. It's one thing to say, Charles, I know you can do it. I even believe you can do it. It's another thing to get in the wheelbarrow. And this is a beautiful thing called the faith exchange. I want to just talk about this for just a second. Because some of you in the room, some of you watching right now, you say, well, I'd like to do that. I'd like to get in the wheelbarrow with Jesus. I just don't have faith. Yes, you do. You have faith right now in the chair you're seated in. You have faith right now, for those of you who might be watching or listening online or driving, in your car. You have faith that your ATM card is going to work today, your debit card. You have faith that your car, if you drove here, is going to start afterwards. You have faith in all kinds of different things. And what Paul is talking about is this wonderful faith exchange where we take the faith that we have because we were all made as people with faith. God put a desire, Proverbs says, with eternity in our hearts. What does that mean? It means that there's something inside of us that longs for God that longs for something that we cannot find in this world. And C.S. Lewis said, if we have a longing for something that cannot be satisfied in this world, then it must mean that something other than this world exists. We have eternity in our hearts and we have a faith that something else exists, that there's a reality beyond what we can see. And what Paul is talking about here is taking the faith that you have, imperfect and small as it might be, and beginning to exchange it from yourself, your bank account, your relationships, your status, all those things, and beginning more and more to exchange it for faith in Jesus. Now, Jesus said it this way, give me the faith of a mustard seed. How big is a mustard seed? About that big. It was the smallest of all the garden plant seeds, and yet it grew to one of the largest plants in the garden. And Jesus uses that metaphor to say, if you'll just give me a small, imperfect, incomplete faith, I will credit your spiritual bank account with my full righteousness. This is a miracle of grace of what God does for us. Because, everyone watch this, it's not about the size of my faith. It's the object of what I'm putting my faith in. And I'm putting my faith in Jesus, the one who's going to carry me across the trouble who's gonna do for me what I could not do for myself. And this is the beauty and the miracle of faith exchange. Now, Paul wants us to go even further in that. In Romans four, he's calling these witnesses of David, of Abraham. And he's talking about this idea that God makes us right. 11 different times, you can go and count it. 11 different times in chapter four, Paul says that we're made right with God, and he credits the word credit or counts um, righteousness to us as we place our faith in him. In other words, it's my faith, my imperfect small faith in Jesus, the object of my faith, and God credits or counts me or makes me right because of that faith. And Paul wants to go even further now as we get into chapter five. And how do we know that he wants to go further with this thought of being made right by faith, not by our works? Because of the first word in Romans chapter five, look at it with me. What is the first word that Paul uses in Romans chapter five? Therefore, now, Whenever we see the word therefore in the Bible, we should ask our, it, a light bulb should go off and we should ask ourselves the question immediately, what is it therefore? Why is that word there? 
Paul uses this word, therefore, at the beginning of Romans 5 to connect everything he's getting ready to say, our passage today, uh, verses 1 through 11, all the way back to chapters 1 through 4. And specifically chapter 4, where he's saying 11 different times that God credits us, counts us as righteous as we place our faith in him. And now he wants to go even further. And the way he wants to go further is to talk about the realities. Remember Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is being sure of the realities of what we hope for. Now Paul is saying, here are the realities of being made right with God. And I want to show you three of them. And if you're taking notes or you have your phone and you can jot a few notes, I want to encourage you to take some notes. Because here's the deal, guys. We tend to forget the things we need to remember and we remember the things we should forget. And the things that you're getting ready to hear, forget that it's me. It's not about me. The things that we're getting ready to hear from Romans are things we need to remember. And whether you believe that there's an enemy of your heart and soul or not, doesn't matter. He exists. Believe me, he believes in you. And he doesn't want you to remember these things. And he certainly doesn't want you to wake up tomorrow morning on Monday and live your life by them. But Paul says there's a reality of being made right with God. The word here is justified. The word justified is a legal term that means right. I'm I'm being made right with God, not by my works, but by faith. And Paul says there's a reality to being made right, to being justified with God. Just for a second, let's imagine that we're in a courtroom, okay? And all of you are in the audience, and I'm on trial here, and there's a judge that I'm standing before. And God looks at me and he says, you know, Chris, you've rebelled against me. You've made all kinds of choices against me that are selfish and self-serving. You've done all kinds of things by your choices throughout your life to, to show me that you don't love me and that there's something between us. And you know what, guys? Every single word that God would say to me about that is true. That's exactly right. But imagine this. Imagine God looking at me and saying all of those things and then saying, but today, because of your faith in me, I'm declaring you righteous not guilty. This is what the gospel is, but it gets even better. Because not only am I justified, I'm made righteous because the judge has said so, because of what he's done, not because of me. It's not what I deserved. But then he says, now let's go home. You're coming with me. You're going to be my son. You're going to be my daughter. And now you're going to carry my name and privilege. And this is what Paul is unpacking for us, the realities of being made right with God, of being justified with God. There's three of them, okay? Look at verse 1, Romans chapter 5. Paul says, the reality of being justified means that I have peace with God. We have peace with God. Let me read it for you again, Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, again, he's connecting all the things he's already said. And he says, therefore, since we're made right with God through Christ in our faith, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, not by works, by faith, we have peace with God. Emphasis on the with, underline that in your Bible or if you're taking notes. And how do we have peace with God? Because, but the word because appears five or three different times in verses one through five. So it's gonna answer, he's gonna answer, how do we have peace with God? because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. Now, the word with here is very important because there's a peace of God 
And Paul writes about this multiple times in letters to the church. And these are wonderful passages to realize that we have a peace of God that Paul says passes all of our understanding and circumstances. That we can have a peace that overcomes the worst of tragedies in our life. That all heck can be breaking loose around us and we can have the peace of God. And that's a wonderful thing. But that's not the word that he uses here. He doesn't say peace of God. He says we have peace with God, which should, which should cause some curiosity for us. What is he trying to say? Why would Paul say that because we've been justified, we've been made right with God, that we have peace with God? Well, because there was a war that was going on between us and God. And you say, what? Yeah, all the way back in Genesis when our ancestors, Adam and Eve, chose to sin against God, sin entered into the world. And you say, that's not fair. And you know what I'm going to say? Fair is where you get cotton candy. And fairness ended in the garden. In the garden of Eden, fairness ended. So in other words, when our ancestors, Adam and Eve, sinned, a a condition of sin came over all of humanity and you were born with it. But guess what? You weren't just born with a condition of sin and brokenness that chooses yourself. You participated in it. And if we're all honest with ourselves, it's not about your neighbor, it's not about me, it's about you. We've all made choices to actively rebel against God's standard in our life. We've all participated in said rebellion against God. And so the Bible calls us enemies of God. Why? Because we've participated in a rebellion against his holy standard and his perfect way. And now Paul is saying because we've been made right with God, the hostilities are over. That we have peace not just of God, but we have peace with God that there's nothing between us anymore, that, that now I can come and stand before God because we're not enemies anymore. And it's not anything I did. It's what he declared. He declared a truce and a peace between us. Now, I want you to see something here. In verse one, he's gonna answer the question. Again, there's three, uh, the three times the word because appears here in this little passage, Romans five, verses one through five. And the first one's here in verse one. We have peace with God because of what? because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And why am I emphasizing this? Because so many of us, so many people in this room, so many people watching right now, you've grown up in church, you've been coming to church, you return to church, you're still living as if you have to do something to be made right with God. You can call it whatever you wanna call it. The word for it is religion. And you say, well, I'm not a religious person. Yes, you are. Every single person was born with a desire of eternity in their hearts. And many people, what they do with that is they think, I've got to do all these things to make up for all the bad things I've done. And when I get to heaven, I sure hope that I've done more good things than I have bad things. And the tragedy of so many religious people is that they think they still have to do things. And what does the Bible say here in Romans 5 verse 1? By the way, if you don't get anything else out of this message, I want you to zero in on the next 60 seconds here. What does the Bible say about this? Romans 5 verse 1. We're made right with God. We have peace with God because of what we do. Because of what Jesus Christ has done. Now here's how we can frame all this up. It's either do or it's done. It's either what you have to do to work your way to God, to pray your way to God, 
to appease your way to God. It's what you have to do or it's what Christ has done. I don't care what you call it on this side, doing things to work your way to God is all about works and religion. What Christ has done for us is the pure gospel. It's what God did for us. Not just when you were neutral, when you were an enemy to God, when you were rebelling against God. This is what the passage is gonna tell us, that God did for you what you would not and what you could not do for yourself. When two kings, answer me this, when two kings battle over the same territory or they're claiming rights over the same place, we're seeing this all over the world right now and we have since the beginning of time. When two kings, when two powerful people claim a right over the same space, what happens? War. So when I claim right over my life and my heart and the God of the universe claims the same right over my life and my heart, what happens? There's a war between us. And the only way that war can cease is if someone surrenders. And when I come to Christ and I place even the smallest imperfect amount of faith in Jesus, there's a secession of hostilities. There's a ceasing of of all the conflict between me and God, past, present, and future. And it's because I'm surrendering the right to my life back to God. So I have peace with God, but it gets even better. Paul says the realities of being made right with God of justification is that we stand in undeserved privilege. Look at verse 2. We can, um, he says, because of our faith, second because, by the way, because of our faith, Christ has brought us into a place of undeserved privilege where we can now stand. This is beautiful language. So we stand in this place of undeserved privilege, meaning not only has the judge, back to the courtroom, declared me to be righteous, even though I didn't deserve it, now he's inviting me to come and be a part of his family as a son or a daughter and inviting me to stand now in my life in undeserved privilege. Any of you ever receive tickets from a friend or a neighbor and you show up at the game or the concert or the event or wherever and you go, man, these are amazing seats. Like we're on the field. We've got a backstage pass. I'm a VIP. I'm flying first class, whatever it might be. And you go, what did we, we've stumbled into greatness here. How in the world did we end up in this place? This is what Paul is saying that we have an undeserved privilege in standing before God because we belong to him. Um, I love the phrase, you know, only a child can wake up a king in the middle of the night for a glass of water. Only a child of the king can knock on his door and say, I'm thirsty in the middle of the night. And this is what Paul is saying that we've been invited into the king's family and we have access now to God. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 4 verse 16 says that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. What does that mean? It means that wherever, everyone watch this, wherever we go in the world, I know many of us are getting ready to hit the road and travel. Wherever we go this week, wherever we find ourselves, we're in the throne room of God as Christians. We're always in the presence of God and invited to come before the throne with our needs, with our challenges, with our troubles, with our problems, and bring them before the king in a standing of undeserved privilege. And this fills us, friends, with conviction 
because God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And now we stand in this new relationship. Paul calls it a new friendship that we have with God because of Christ. But it gets even better. Not only do we have peace with God, not only do we stand now as sons and daughters of the king in undeserved privilege, having full access to the throne of grace, being able to ask anything that we want in the name of Jesus coming before the king. But finally, Paul says in verse two that we have confidence and we have joy. He says we have confidence and we have joy. Look at verse two. Because we look forward to sharing in God's glory. Now, confidence is different than arrogance. All of us know arrogant people. And arrogance is typically based in insecurity. And so I've got to project all of this, you know, whatever out for you so you don't ever see how vulnerable and insecure I really am. That's not confidence. Confidence is being sure of something. Confidence is a conviction Confidence comes from knowing your identity. Confidence comes from knowing where you belong and where you're going. Paul says we have a confidence in the Lord because of what he's done, because of what he's doing, because of what he will do. And we have a joy. Joy is different than happiness. All of you, your Instagram feed is full of happy people. It's amazing. There's no sad people on Instagram. Everybody's happy all the time. Happiness is always based on something exterior, There's something out here, an external, that's happening in my life that causes me a momentary sense of happiness. There's nothing wrong with it. But you know that it comes and it goes. When you're three years old and you get the toy that you want in your Happy Meal, you're happy. If you don't, you don't. And the reality is we just grow up and the toys just get bigger and more expensive. But it's the same mentality. If I get the toys I want, I'm happy. If I don't, I'm not happy. That's not what Paul's talking about. Joy, watch this. Happiness is a temporary condition that's based on the external. Joy is a permanent condition of the heart. It's, it's, it's based on knowing who I am. It's based on knowing who God is and what he's done for me, what he's doing in my life now, what he will do. And so interestingly, as we think about confidence and we think about joy, the reason that this comes third, this third reality, so to speak, The reason this is third in the order here is because the more we experience peace with God, the first reality, and the more we experience access to the throne room of grace, you know, with the king of the universe that we can come before him in the middle of the night and ask for a glass of water, the more we experience that, the more we become desirous to see him face to face, and the more certain and thrilled we become about the prospect of glory with him in heaven where we'll share this fully. So heaven is this, you know, you think about heaven, many people think about it, and it's this ethereal, far-off place or idea. But if we begin on this side of eternity to taste the peace with God that we have, to, to experience access with God now, uh, to understand confidence and joy and conviction in the Lord, we begin to taste and experience a few drops of heaven on this side of eternity. And it fills us with a joyous conviction of our shared future together. This is what the Bible means when it says Christ, the hope of glory. It's it's the reality of our being made right with God, our justification. And we begin to taste and see that reality even now on this side of brokenness. This is why Paul said in Philippians 1 uh, verse 6, I'm confident, there's our word, I'm confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. 
I'm not arrogant. I'm confident. I'm convicted about this. I'm convinced of this and this reality of what I'm hoping for. That God who began a good work of salvation in you is going to be faithful to complete it. Listen, guys, God's more committed to you than you are to yourself. And he's more committed to making you more like him than you are. And that's why, I'm going to finish right here. That's why the next couple of verses are in here. Because here's the ninja trick when it comes to faith. Even trials and tribulations and troubles and problems can't rob us of the realities of justification. Here, here's, this is the ninja move where you're, you're pulling the problems and you're actually saying, I welcome them. Why? Because actually, the more I understand the brokenness of the world, the more in touch I am the, with the realities of heaven. The more in touch I am the, with the realities and the promises of being made right with God. But listen to these words. Paul says, we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. Now, let me just stop there. To rejoice, dear friends, is always a choice. To rejoice is a choice. And Paul says, we, followers of Jesus, can rejoice when we experience trials and problems, not if. You've heard me say it before, I'm going to say it a million more times. You're either in a crisis, you're coming out of a crisis, you're getting ready to go into a crisis. That is the reality of this broken world. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome the world. This is what Paul is saying. He says, even when we experience trials and tribulations, we can know that they develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. What does this mean? It means when we leave here today and we face all the various trials and tribulations and problems that this world throws at us, that somehow for those who follow Jesus, it doesn't have to defeat us or disappoint us. It can strengthen our conviction and our joy and the reality of what's to come and the presence of Christ now. Somehow sufferings and pain, watch this, somehow trials and tribulations, the thing that you're experiencing now, sets off a chain reaction of hope in the hearts of a Christian. It develops endurance and then character, and then character leads us to perseverance and joy and confidence in the realities of everything that we've just talked about. And it all begins, everyone watch this, it all begins right here. Get in the wheelbarrow. Begin to exchange your faith in yourself, your bank account, your relationships, your status, all that stuff. Begin to exchange the faith that you have in Jesus. And watch your spiritual bank account go from zero or less, bankrupt, to being credited fully with the righteousness of God. That is the miracle of the gospel. To Christ be the glory today. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, you know, I think about that table that he shared with his friends and all the things that were happening at that table. And he shared so many truths with his friends that night, but maybe no, important, no more important truth than, than the truth of his presence with them and the truth of what he was getting ready to do so that we could be made right with him. 
Jesus took two very common elements. He took bread and he took wine, a cup. And with the bread, he gave thanks and he, and he broke the bread and he said, this, this bread represents my body that is being given for each and every one of you. And he took a cup and as it was filled with wine, he said, this cup represents a new covenant, a new promise that I'm making with each and every one of you through my blood. And Jesus said, as often as you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim my sacrifice. In other words, what is Jesus saying? He says, as often as you come to this table, just as we are today, this ancient table, you remember that it's been done for you. You remember Romans 5 verse 1, that it's done, it's not due. It's not what I have to keep doing. It's what Christ has done. When Jesus was on the cross, what does he say? It's finished. He didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. What is finished? The work of salvation for you and for me. It's done. And now God calls us to get in the wheelbarrow and place our faith in him. And as we come to the table, we're reminded of this truth, of what God did for us. Let, let me just reread verses 6 through 8 here and hear it in the context of the table. Paul says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and he died for us. Those of us, all of us who are sinners. Now, most people would be willing to die for an upright person. Not many people would be willing to die for an upright person, though some might be willing to die for an especially good person. Listen to this. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die while we were still sinners. This is the miracle of the gospel. The scriptures say that we should examine our hearts and prepare our hearts to receive the elements. And so I want to give you just a, a moment of silence to confess anything in your life that you need to confess, to ask God for forgiveness because he's faithful to forgive us, to ask him to purify and cleanse our hearts. So let's pray together now.